Aloha and welcome to Our Homes, Ending the Housing Crisis. My name is Stanley Chang, and I'm a state senator in Honolulu, Hawaii. Together with Faith Action for Community Equity, a grassroots interfaith nonprofit dedicated to addressing Hawaii's social justice challenges, we're here to understand housing more deeply and seek new, innovative solutions from all over the world to the severe housing crisis here. But many of the lessons may also apply to your community, wherever you may be. And now, on with the show. Good morning and welcome to Our Homes Ending the Housing Crisis. We're fortunate today to have two of the top experts on the city of Houston's growth and development. Stephen Kleinberg and Kyle Shelton, the Director and Deputy Director of Rice University's Kinder Institute for Urban Research. Professor Kleinberg's work includes the Houston Area Survey, an annual survey tracking the demographics and economics of Harris County residents since 1982. And Professor Shelton has published extensively on the intersection of transportation, urban planning, and development. Gentlemen, welcome to Our Homes Ending the Housing Crisis, and please take it away. Okay, Stanley, thanks so much. It's a honor for both me and Carl, Kyle to be. We were talking before about how come we're not there in person in the beautiful, beautiful part of the world that you guys live in. But a great chance to share with you what we think we've learned from, from studying this, what turns out to be a really interesting and remarkable city that most people don't know much about in Houston. Houston is the fourth largest city in America. We know about Chicago and New York and Los Angeles. I want to tell you something about Houston in just a few, in a short amount of time to sort of track the remarkable changes in the city. We've done 39 surveys annually. The first survey back in 1982, Houston was booming. 82% of all the jobs in Houston were tied into the price of oil. Price of oil increased tenfold in value. This was a one company town riding the resource of the industrial age, world famous for having imposed the least amount of controls on developments of any city in the Western world. No zoning, no regulations, minimum taxation. We, we were the epitome of what Americans can achieve when left unfettered by government, government controls. Riding the oil boom, suddenly, after our, we did a one-time survey in 1982, two months later, in May of 1982, the oil boom collapsed. Houston went into major recession and then recovered into a very different world of the, of the 21st century. Let's see if I can make this. There we go. And so three central themes I want to touch on very quickly here. I'm sorry, I got it, okay. The new economy where blue collar jobs have disappeared, where there are growing inequalities and growing poverty along with wealth in America, predicated above all else on access to quality education. A truly epic transformation in the ethnic composition of the Houston, the Texas and the American population. Nowhere more clearly seen than in Houston's, I'll get to in just a second. And then what we're talking about here, a new awareness that if Houston's gonna make it, it has to become a destination of choice, a place where the best and the brightest people in America who can live anywhere will say, I wanna live in Houston, Texas. And affordability of housing and mobility are central pieces of, of, of the quality of life for Houston, for cities in the 21st century. The new economy. Here is the 30 years after World War II. The rising tide lifted all boats. The, the, uh, we emerged out of that war, the sole economic power on the planet. All of our potential competitors were decimated by the war experience. This was a world of big business, big government, big labor. 38% of the jobs in America were union jobs. The unions could negotiate with the corporations to ensure that workers shared in the prosperity of the companies. And the rising tide lifted all boats. The poorest 20% of American families in those 30 years after World War II literally doubled their incomes in real terms. Between 1950 and 1975, the, the richest 5% doubled theirs. Those were the years when we celebrated the stay-at-home housewife mother in suburbia. The average American woman between 1946, right after World War II, and, 19, and 1964, the average American woman gave birth to 3.6 children on average, and the baby boom was launched upon the land. 76 million babies, overwhelmingly Anglo babies, that's who was here to be born in that period after World War II. 76 million, a, a bulge, the monophers talk about like a pig being swallowed by a python, not very comfortable either for the pig or the python. The leading edge of those 76 million babies turned 74 this year. And we are gonna watch a literal doubling of the number of Americans over the age of 65 in the next 25 years. Every day between now and 2030, 
day after day, 10,000 Americans will turn 65. And by 2030, the youngest of the 76 million will have turned 65, heading off eventually into the proverbial sunset, being replaced by a very different generation of Americans. It is the epic transformation of our times. So this is the, 40, the 30 years after World War II. Here are the last 35 years when virtually all the benefits of economic growth are gone, the richest 5%, most of that to the richest 1%, the bottom 60% of American families who had experienced the doubling of their incomes in the 30 years after World War II found their incomes stagnating or going down. In the last 35 years, a, a dramatic redistribution of earnings out of the hands of the poor and the middle class into the hands of the rich and the super rich in a way that is, we have never seen before in American history with the sole exception of the 1920s, just before during the roaring 20s and just before the total collapse of the economy with the Great Depression. Uh, what happened? Two big things happened. And then a total failure to address those issues and they underlie the, the affordability of housing among a whole bunch of other things. The growing inequalities, two big things happened. Number one, globalization. Companies can produce goods anywhere, sell them everywhere. If you are doing a job that I can train a third world worker to do, and I pay that third world worker $15 a day to do that job, I'm not going to pay you $15 an hour. And if you are doing a job that I can program a computer to do, I will soon be replacing your job with an intelligent machine. We are in a new world where education, always a nice thing to have, has become absolutely essential to a person's ability to earn enough money to support a family in the global knowledge economy of the 21st century. So a few quick examples of what we're talking about. This is an analysis of the requirements for jobs in America. In the 1970s, where there were 91 million jobs in this country. Of those 91 million jobs in the 70s, one third you were eligible for as a high school dropout. Another 40% required no more than high school. Uh, and here's what's happened to the jobs since then. And by the end of this year, 2020, 65% of all the jobs that will exist in America will require education beyond high school not necessarily four years of college, but one or two years in a community college to acquire the technical skills that connect you to the jobs of the 21st century. Houston is facing a major shortage of skilled welders, of skilled electricians, of skilled plumbers, of skilled health technicians. Maybe not four, uh, 16 years, but 14 years of education is now the critical requirement for being able to survive successfully in the global economy of the 21st century. And so we're watching in Houston growing affluence and growing poverty simultaneously. Here's just a few examples. We asked last year, supposing you had an emergency expense, had to come up with $400 to meet an emergency expense. How would you deal with that situation? Would you be able to pay for it out of savings? Would you need to borrow it? Or would you not be able to come up with $400? And almost four out of every 10 respondents in our survey in 2019 said they could not come up with $400 to meet an emergency, living at the, at the edge of uh, uh, on the brink of, of of disaster from one and this was of course before the pandemic hit houston has the greatest medical complex in the world and houston has the highest percentage of children without health insurance of any major city in america one fourth of all the respondents in our survey have no health insurance whatsoever one third are, are surviving on household incomes of less than $37,500. Another third had problems paying for the groceries to feed their families. And one third, when we asked the question in 2018, we're going to ask it again in 2020, 2021, one third said they had problems paying for their housing during the past year. One out of every three Houstonians. Major re reminder of the inequalities in, in America tied above all else now on quality, on access to quality education. Theme number two, this remarkable, fundamental, irreversible transformation in the ethnic composition of the Houston, the Texas, and the American population. Here's a quick reminder of our history. This is a number of documented immigrants coming to America in each of the decades of the 1820s to 2000s. The story of our lifetimes is that between 1492 and 1965, 82% of all the human beings on the face of this earth who came to American shores, 82% came from Europe. Another 12% were Africans originally brought here as slaves to serve the Europeans. There was a handful of Chinese and Japanese working as farmers and laborers in California and Hawaii. This nation was an amalgam of European nationalities, deliberately so. We were operating under the last 40 years of that period, in 1924, the racist laws the US Congress ever passed. The National Origins Quota Act came out of the great anti-immigrant racist backlash that accompanied the last great wave of immigration 
when 15.9 million immigrants came to America between 1890 and 1914, coming from Europe, but not coming from Northern Europe. They were coming from Southern and Eastern Europe, and they weren't Protestants, they were Catholics and Jews, and they had no history of democracy. Can we take our job and destroy our country? In 1924, enacted this incredible act that basically said, only Northern Europeans from now on will be allowed to come to America. See what happens to immigration, it plummets, that's the Great Depression in the 1930s, followed by the, uh, World War II, the terrible aftermath of World War II, we thought immigration had ended. The racist laws in the 1920s could not survive the shifts of consciousness with the civil rights movements, Kennedy's assassination. In 1965, Congress changed the laws, thinking nothing's going to change. Immigration had ended, but we're now no longer going to allow only Europeans to come. We'll, we'll give preference to, to family reunification. So uh, things will not change much because if new people are going to come, they're going to be related to those who are already here. Then they added another provision. They say, well, if you're a professional of exceptional ability, if you have skills that are needed in short supply, you too can come to the head of the line. And Congress in this debate was saying, we need to open the door for some more British doctors, some more German engineers. It never occurred to anyone that there were going to be African doctors, Indian engineers, Chinese computer programmers, Filipino nurses who would be able for the first time in, in, in the 20th century to come to America from, from those countries. And, and the, thinking nothing would change, everything changed. During the 1960s, three and a half million immigrants came to America, only 38% were Europeans. 1970s, five million came, only 18% were Europeans. 1980s, 90s, and 2000s, 10 million immigrants per decade have been coming to America, 88% coming from Asia, Latin America, Africa, and the Caribbean. And the United States, throughout all of its history, had been an amalgam of European nationalities, is becoming a microcosm of the world. You guys in Hawaii have had this for a while. This is new for us in America, a, a world where, where, where America, for the first time in, in history, can say, we are a free people, and we come from everywhere. It's a remarkable change. Having the same moment as American economies becoming fully integrated in a single global world economic system. Immigration, of course, is network-driven, so it's not happening the same rate everywhere. The big immigration capital is New York City, followed by Los Angeles, Miami, Chicago, followed right after Chicago by Houston, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Dallas, Boston, Atlanta, spreading out to every city and town across America. No city has been transformed as fully, as completely, as suddenly, as irreversibly as Houston, Texas. This was a biracial southern city dominated and controlled by white men. In 1960, there were 1.243 million people living in Harris County, Texas. 74% of us were Anglos, 20% African-Americans, just 6% Hispanics, less than one half of 1% were Asians. During the oil boom years of the 60s and 70s, Anglos were pouring into the city. This is where the jobs were, and by 1980, it used to become the fourth largest city in America, still an overwhelmingly Anglo city. After the oil bust of 1982, the Anglo population of Harris County stopped growing. And all the growth of this, the most rapidly growing city in America, has been the influx of African-Americans, Latinos, and Asians. Here are the last three completed decades from the census. Uh, and its estimates for, for, for this year, we'll get the final figures in a couple of years, of course, with the 2020 census. Anglo populations uh, stops growing and then drops slightly. African-American population keeps pace with the population as a whole, fueled by African immigration, fueled by the great remigration of middle-class African-Americans who go into northern cities, coming back to southern cities, Atlanta first, Houston second, and soaring populations of, of, of Latinos and Asians. And by, by the most recent census figures, Harris County is now 42% Hispanic, 31% Anglo, 19% African-American, 8% Asian truly remarkable transformations happening across all of America, nowhere more sharply articulated, more clearly seen than in Houston, Texas. And it's not just numbers, of course, it's also ages. So this brings me back to the baby boom discussion at the beginning. We've got, let's see, babies on the left and old people on the right. I've got 12 different age categories from under the age of five to age 75 and older. And here, somewhat to my chagrin, is where the Anglos are in Harris County, Texas today. Ladies and gentlemen, the baby boom. It's not until you reach people in Harris County age 63 and older that the majority of folks are still Anglos. And at each younger age group, the percentage of Anglos plummets, the percentage of African-Americans, Asians, and Latinos surges. Here's where everybody else is in Harris County, Texas today. 
So this is a powerful picture of Houston's present and future of everybody in Harris County, Texas, not inner city Houston, not HISD, right? Everybody in Harris County who is under the age of 20, who will be the voters and citizens and taxpayers uh, of, of Houston and America in the 21st century, of everybody under the age of 20, 51% are Latinos, 19% are African-Americans, 9% are Asians, 21% are Anglos. So two big points, right? Number one, 70% of everybody under 20 is African-American, Latino, the two groups the most likely to be living in poverty. We know what poverty does to your ability to succeed in the public school system. It's a safe statement to make that if Houston's African-American, Latino young people are unprepared to succeed in the global economy of the 21st century, it is difficult to envision a prosperous future for Houston. And the other point to make is that this is a done deal. Close the borders, build your fence, close off America, round up those 10 million people you think are here illegally, send them where everything. Not going to change much. 63-year-old Anglos are not going to be making a whole lot more babies. Houston, uh, no force in the world will stop Houston or Texas or America from becoming more African-American, more Asian, more Latino, and less Anglo as the 21st century unfolds. Nothing in the world can stop that. So the only, only question our generation has been given is, how do we make this work? How do we ensure that this diversity becomes a tremendous asset that it can be as we position ourselves in the global economy? Houston has the second largest port in the country and make sure it doesn't end up tearing us apart and becoming a major liability. Much depends on how this generation speaks to this remarkable convergence of the two forces that have transformed the 21st century, a new economy where education has become critical and a demographic revolution. And, and so that's the, that's the Houston that's coming into this world of now thinking about quality of life, about, about uh, uh, affordable housing, about transportation. I just want to touch on, on a few pieces here because increasingly now the general public understands and the business community understands Houston's location in the East Texas oil fields that counted for everything in Houston's prosperity in the 20th century is going to count for less and less and eventually for zilch in the Houston prosperity of the 21st century. The source of wealth uh, is housed between the ears of the best and the brightest people in America who can live anywhere. And suddenly quality of life issues are now central to the pro-growth agenda for Houston in the 21st century. And one piece that's sort of be an introduction to what Kyle is going to be talking to us about is this, this is in many ways, by most measures, the most spread out, least dense, most automobile dependent city in all of America. This is the city of Houston. It covers 600 square miles and has a grand total of 2.2 million people living within city limits. 600 square miles. You know how big that is? You could put inside the city limits of Houston, Texas simultaneously, I kid you not, the cities of Chicago, Baltimore, Detroit, and Philadelphia. Those four cities cover the same geographical space as the city of Houston, and they contain five and a half million people collectively. Houston has only 2.2 million. And then you go out to the greater Houston metropolitan area, the CMSA, the nine counties that the census defines as, as a Houston metropolitan region. There it is, Harris County's in the middle. This is Fort Bend County, by the way, where it's Sugarland and Missouri City. Fort Bend County, we think, is the most ethnically diverse county on this planet. Fort Bend County today is 21% Asian, 20% African-American, 24% Latino, 34% Anglo. You can't get much closer to one-fourth, 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 which is the sort of the classic measure of the entropy index. How close does the population come to equal force of the great populations of America? But the greater Houston metropolitan area, the CMSA of Houston, covers 10,000 square miles. That is almost as large as the entire state of Massachusetts and considerably larger than the state of New Jersey. This is the blob that ate East Texas. Houston has no zoning and no regulations hardly because it is so spread out. There's so much space. This the city built uh, on a crummy little bayou, 50 miles from any natural barrier in any direction. No mountains, no forests, no rivers. A developer's dream built by Ford on behalf of the automobile, made possible by air conditioning, and we spread everywhere. And we've created a civilization totally predicated on the automobile. We've been asking people in our surveys, if you could choose how you wanted to live in Houston, what would you prefer? And here's what we find. So last thing I'm going to show you quickly before I pass it over to Kyle. Would you, uh, where would you, how would you like to live in Houston? A single family residential area or an area with a mix of developments, including homes, shops, and restaurants? 
And it's a 50-50 split, even though 90% of us live in single-family residential areas because that's, that's what was constructed by the free enterprise system in building these master-planned communities out in that vast expanse. The greater Houston metropolitan area that is not a city and suburb anymore, it's an MCMR, a multi-centered metropolitan region with major centers of activity uh, where there's some density and walkability within a framework of, of tremendous expanse of, of space. And then we said, what kind of home would you like to live in? A single family home with a big yard where you need to drive just about everywhere you want to go or a smaller, more urbanized home within walking distance of shops and workplaces. And again, a 50-50 split. And what we're dealing with here, I think, is the recognition that this is not anti-sprawl or anti-big houses or, or anti-driving. It is, it is that we are a different folk today. Then we were, we all went out and built this sprawling metropolis in the 1960s and 70s. In 1970 census, two thirds of all American families had children living at home. And, and today, one third in the census things by the end of the 2020 census, one fourth of all households in America will have children at home. Another one fourth are, are, will live in, are, are single folks living in, in single family housing, single, I'm sorry, single, single, single uh, residences. Uh, a whole bunch of us are empty nesters. The kids have grown up. I work downtown. I love the ballet and the symphony. Do I want to still have to drive everywhere all the time? Uh, and and we're attracting, the, we hope, the millennials, the creative class. Sociologists talk about millennials as a postponing generation in no rush to get married, to have babies, to turn us into grandparents. They don't want to live out in the suburbs and drive everywhere. They want all the variety, walkability, bar hopping, diversity that only urban life can provide. And the fastest growing age segment of the American population are men and women today over the age of 80. And we have not seen anything yet. As that baby boom generation moves rapidly into senior status, I'm not sure I want all those 85 year olds driving everywhere in Houston, Texas. We are a new folk in a new world coming to grips with housing that we inherited patterns from the past that now need to be rethought along with so much else as we rethink how to position this city for prosperity in a very different world of the 21st century. So I'm gonna stop there. Visit kinder.rice.edu and you can download the report on, on, last, on this year's survey. And we finally have, have a book out called Prophetic City, Houston on the Cusp of Changing America, published by Simon & Schuster, available at, your, at uh, wherever you buy your books. And now I wanna turn it, I'm sorry to take it so long, but it's a, isn't this a fascinating city? It's really right at the forefront of what's happening across the country particularly clear in Houston, because this was a, the epitome of the free enterprise city, now recognizing we've got to find a way to ensure access to, to quality housing and, and opportunities in this very different world. I turn it now to my colleague and, and uh, person for whom I have a great deal of respect, Kyle Shelton. Thanks, Kyle. Steve. And you, you get to take a break, but you still have to drive my slides. So okay, cut my finger. And it's, it's always intimidating to go after Steve. So, you know, cut me some slack for a little less uh, streamlined. Uh, <laughs> conversation he's been he's been doing this his survey discussion for quite a while and he captures so much about our our city and and knows it so well so i'm i'm happy to chime in here as well and and i'm going to be brief because i want to hear from you all and, and hear from senator chang as well some questions that we can help with um uh, thinking in hawaii um and i but i do want to dive a little bit more deeply into housing specifically in houston and in harris county may, uh, mainly which is an area that the kinder institute has done a lot of research um, as and as Steve laid out so nicely, I think um, a lot of these interconnected issues, as you all well know as well, um, that tie into housing, whether it's uh, economic prosperity and opportunity, education, um, health access, transportation. There's there's so much that ties in importantly to housing, and in my mind, um, and I know when we talked to Senator Chang uh, earlier this week as well, the the kind of keystone that is housing, right? We all we all start our day somewhere in in a variety of circumstances and what those circumstances are determine a whole lot about what else we uh, encounter in a day and what opportunities we have. And so I just wanna paint some of the picture of, of what's happening in Houston. And I know a lot of it will be shared with you all in Hawaii and, and looking forward to talk more. So just a few uh, high level things to touch on. So Houston, the city of Houston does not have zoning, uh, land use traditional zoning. It's the largest city in the United States that does not have zoning. The second largest is Pasadena, Texas, which is basically subsumed by the city of Houston. Um, so number one and number two in, in the country that don't have traditional land use zoning are in the Houston metropolitan area. 
Um, we can talk more about this in the Q&A, but it doesn't mean that Houston doesn't have land use regulation. There are a lot of tools that have been put in place in the city, um, especially in the last 20 or 30 years, um, to try to regulate what, what land use has, uh, are available and what the form it takes looks like in different parts of the city. Um, and something that Steve actually has said uh, previously is one of the things to note as well is in a lot of ways, even though Houston doesn't have zoning, it doesn't look far different from a city like Dallas that does have traditional zoning. So there is something um, that Houston has captured many of the same elements that a traditionally zoned city has had with some exceptions that I'll talk about. Um, one thing that I do think is important and I know you all are, are thinking about solutions and, and, and how to address your challenge of housing affordability. Um, one thing that I think is undeniable about the fact that Houston doesn't have zoning is that it does provide a flexible foundation to a great extent, right? There are fewer regulations in place about what can go where, what it looks like, all the things you're checking through when you have a zoning code and thinking about asking for um, uh, being able to change that and thinking about where you're going and how you're planning. Houston has more flexibility and that's both good and bad. <laughs> that creates its own challenges. Um, and one of the things that we've noticed in Houston actually is one of the problems with lack of zoning is um, because development can happen by right, there's a lot, it's a lot harder uh, to get what you want from a societal point of view if you don't ask for it or if you don't require it. And so one of the things that Houston has been grappling with recently, as Steve showed with the demand for more amenities and for more walkability is now confronting this status quo where before developers said, okay, I own this lot, I'm building this multifamily project you, you're not telling me a single thing about what it looks like. So I'm going to build basically the cheapest, most basic thing I can build. Here it is. And I'm moving on. Um, and so a lot, you know, a lot of the amenities that you might expect in, in multifamily projects, uh, particularly those that were built uh, outside of the last 10 years, were really much just driven by let's get units on the ground, let's make our money and let's move on. And so now Houston is trying to grapple with, oh, wait, we need amenities, people demand them and developers are starting to build them more and more but the city is also trying to think through what regulations can we pa pass and what steps can we take to get the type of urban form we wanna see in the city. Uh, another big issue, and I'll talk more about this when I talk a little bit about NIMBYism in Houston, is um, one of the challenges of not having regulation is that those who have access to the tools that allow them to control what happens in their communities and what happens on their streets, um, tend to be more powerful, more well-resourced and more politically connected communities. And so while things don't actually in fact change overnight, um, except with rare exceptions, they do change really quickly. And communities that have little political power or little financial power have far fewer tools and far fewer ability, far less of an ability to give input into what they want the shape of their communities to look like. And then finally, I would say as well, Steve highlighted this, you know, Houston as the place with a reputation of being market driven, being affordable, being a, a place to come and grow and, and gain opportunity. Again, one of the challenges of not having much regulation is that when we talk about housing affordability for the context of Harris County, which I know uh, is going to look really different when I show you the price, the median price points, because compared to Hawaii, it is much more affordable. But when we think about it in the context of Harris County, um, without having sort of the shape and, and structures for regula regulatory approaches to affordability, it makes it very hard to balance investments with affordability alongside market rate. And we're finding that we're having to work really hard to ensure that we're not just building market rate units, but that we're also consciously maintaining and preserving affordable units um, and also building new. So Steve, if you can go to the next slide. I'm gonna just give a few quick data snapshots and then end just by showing some of the dilemmas we have about where to build housing in the future. And then I'm happy, I think Steve and I are both excited to have ongoing conversation. So the Kinder Institute is now doing an annual study called the State of Housing in Harris County in Houston. Um, and these next three slides are gonna be from that. Um, as I said, the reputation of Houston and Harris County as being an affordable place um, is still true compared to major metropolitan areas, the median house house price, sales price, and the city of Houston is now just under $270,000 a year. But again, in the context of our region, it has changed drastically since 2010. So you can see that the sales prices in Harris County have gone up 37%. Um, similar percentage growth in the city of Houston. City of Houston is the orange line on the top. It's more expensive to live in the city than it is in Harris County. 
Um, and even though compared to those other metropolitan areas, the starting price point is much lower for Houston and for some of the challenges that Steve mentioned, the affordability is declining because incomes have not grown much at all. Um, and particularly for the lowest income folks, um, the transitions we're seeing in the housing market, more and more higher end, higher rent units and higher priced homes um, is making the, uh, the challenge of affordability greater. So Steve, you can go to the next one. Uh, and one of the ways we see that is also a decline in home ownership, particularly by race. Um, this is a, a national story that black home ownership has dropped um, since the Great Recession. And we see that as well in Harris County and Houston. Um, it is by far the lowest rate. Um, and it's clear that black homeowners did not recover to the same extent after the Great Recession as other racial and ethnic groups. And one of the challenges we're seeing now is that the barriers to entry for black and brown communities and for black and brown folks with low incomes are increasingly bigger and bigger. And so not only are they already not, are many households not accessing that major wealth creation uh, tool that is a privately held home, they're also finding it harder and harder to get into that. So they both are dealing with generational lack of access to home ownership and are also increasingly unable to enter into that space. Um, and so it's compounding a lot of the economic challenges that we have here. And then Steve, if you wanna to go to the last slide with state of housing, um, what that all translates to is that lower income families are feeling are, are now in competition with median income families and households for fewer and fewer affordable units, right? So housing prices are going up, uh, rental prices are going up, and incomes aren't. And so what we see is that cost burden renters are growing. Uh, the, the number of cost burden renters in Harris County uh, it has grown considerably. The percentages stayed relatively stable. If you look at 2010, you can see it's just under, uh, just over 45% of, of renters um, who are cost burdened. Um, the orange are those who are spending more than 50% of their income on housing. I, I, I didn't have a chance to double check what Hawaii's rates are, but I assume it's very similar, if not worse, given y'all's prices. Uh, but cost burden is a, is a very significant challenge. And as housing prices rise, both for purchasing and renting, and fewer people are able to move into the homeownership ranks, the competition for rentals becomes even greater. And it squeezes the lowest income uh, folks into homes that they, can know, that they can't afford. And so the cost burden for renters is, at, is most significant for those making less than $50,000 a year. Um, and it's more than 70% of that population, whether homeowners or renters in Harris County are spending more than 30% of their income on housing. So it's, a, it's an increasingly uh, problematic uh, situation for Harris County, despite the fact that we're sort of seen as an affordable place. And I think that ties really importantly into Steve's comment about a city like Houston, a region like Houston, keeping its uh, competitive edge so much of that has been driven by affordability. So this is a question we're really grappling with and thinking about how you move forward. So of course, with all these challenges and just like you all are facing and just like any other locale is facing, the next question becomes, where do you build housing and what does that housing look like? So Steve, you can go to the next one. Um, Houston is not immune to sort of the NIMBY uh, question and the question of how do you build housing in high opportunity areas? This is just one example I can give others as we, just, as we jump in, but this is a recent one. Um, the lot where you can see just to the right in, 20, in 2008 with the, the big roof, um, the three industrial buildings, um, that is the lot that's looking to be developed with a low-income housing tax credit project. Um, the yellow squares in 2008 are all townhomes, so basically attached homes that have been built in Houston since a law change that we can talk a little bit about that has allowed, allowed for smaller lot construction. And you can see between 2008 and 2017 in this neighborhood in the Heights, which is a very uh, competitive hot real estate market, tons and tons of townhomes have been built, right? So there's a huge amount of redevelopment. There's a huge amount of new construction of demolition. And yet the idea of, of adding 60 multifamily units here on this lot, which is a derelict industrial use, a derelict warehouse, um, has raised a lot of uh, concerns and questions. And see if you can hit the next one. Um, there are a lot of protests about it, right? So on the bottom right, you see what the lot looks like compared to some of the new homes. There's been organization around um, pushing local representatives to resist the LIHTC um, designation and resist that project. Um, and we see this all across Houston, just as I know you see in Hawaii. So, so then if you're facing that type of pushback from opportunity areas, places where you think people would be able to improve their lives and have access to those opportunities, then the other side of the coin is, well, Steve, you want to go to the next one? 
what do we do in uh, historically underserved um, central city neighborhoods that are now seeing a lot of gentrification and neighborhood change uh, pressure and potential displacement. Um, and this is also tied hand in hand with those residents also wanting to strengthen their communities and build on the assets that they've had for years and years. And so there's also this double-edged sword of how do we bring new development in a community like Houston's historic third ward, which is a historically black neighborhood right next to downtown that has felt gentrification pressure for 30 years now. Um, how do we bring new community-led uh, investments like the, the project you see being built on the top is an affordable housing center with, uh, it's intended to have housing units services and office space to sort of be an anchor on an, a, a key corridor, um, but also maintain the historic population and not displace the historic population. And so uh, Houston is facing a very significant threat of gentrification um, and also has a lot of that same pushback of neighbors saying, we don't want more affordable housing. We are the places that have gotten it. Uh, time and time again, and now is a time for us to get real investment and, and make sure the folks who are here can benefit. Um, so that's actually my last slide. Um, and I know Steve will come back. Oh, there he is. He just, he just appeared with perfect timing. Um, and that was just the context I wanted to give. And I know uh, Steve and I are both excited to answer questions, both Senator from you and from the audience. Thanks for taking the, uh, having us today. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for two great presentations. Um, we'll, we'll start it off with a general question. Should I stop, stop sharing? All right, perfect. Um, we'll start it off with a general question, which is, do you think that Houston's laissez-faire model of land use regulation has been a success or has it not been a success? <laughs> Depends on what, what criteria you use and, and, and what era, right? It was a great success when the, when Houston was a small place with massive uh, areas to, to grow into with no impediments whatsoever. World, you know, as I say, world famous, having imposed the least amount of controls because you didn't need controls. You could just and come on down and make money. They used to say you could just dress a gorilla in a business suit, send him downtown in the 70s and become a millionaire in a week. So that, that's where it all came from. And, and there's that old saying that nothing fails like success. Houston was enormously successful with an extreme free enterprise ideology. And now recognizing, as, as Carl and others have shown us, that there are serious challenges. It, it, housing may be cheaper, but everyone has to own a car and has to drive long distances. So when you put together the cost of transportation and, and housing, Houston is not affordable, has not been affordable really that much, even, even in the early days when the housing was cheap, but you had to own a car, you had to pay insurance, you had, whereas places like Honolulu and, and San Francisco, at least once you get in there or New York, you can get around without, without a car. And I would also add, I think it's also just mm -hmm. the, um, the externalities and who absorbs the consequences of success um, are also is also really important to highlight, right? So those same politically, um, those who lack political power and financial power have often borne the brunt of the consequences of success, right? So whether it's the construction of new highways that go through underserved communities in the 60s up through today, or the environmental pollution byproducts and incredible challenges we have with environmental injustice in Houston, you know, those are all tied to the successes of the region. And you can't really, you can't say, Who's, who yes, was it was an unmitigated, you know, a, a complete success. It created a lot of wealth for millions of people and also created really significant challenges for folks. And we're, we're still dealing with both today. Yeah, and the whole concept of environmental justice was developed in Houston, in fact, was, that was where, where uh, the Robert Bullard and others had the first bit of evidence that showed where, where did the city put its incinerators and, and, and where, where was the most polluting industries to be found in the areas that were predominantly African-American Latino. But, it, but it's, so I think the theme is that we're all, all these cities are facing the same challenges now as more and more people want to come back into the city, partly because we don't have 3.6 children and we want to be out in the suburbs anymore in the way we used to. Uh, the demand increases, the cost goes up and, and uh, affordability drops and, and poor folks are displaced into other places. It's, so it's a great challenge of, of, of economic justice and general justice that is the American dilemma at the moment, right? Is how do we reduce those inequalities? How do we ensure really meaningful equality of opportunity? 
in, in a country that is allowing massive concentrations of wealth and smaller and smaller numbers of people. So speaking of those concentrations of wealth, um, you've talked about how the home ownership rate has been declining in Houston and also the prices of new homes have been increasing. Um, do you have policy thoughts on which is better? Is it better to encourage home ownership? Um, are we, um, is it okay to, you know, is rental a viable model as well? To me, that's a that's a broader societal discussion that we need to have in the United States because so much of what is wrapped up into our idea of economic opportunity is based on home ownership, and so much of the wealth creation that we rely on it ties to home ownership. So I would say, if that continues to be our model, we have to really significantly grapple with how do we give people access to that. If we're if we're unwilling to change that status quo, and we say for a middle class existence in order to achieve you know, the long-term generational wealth for your household and your family, you need to own a home and you need to use it as an investment, then I think the challenge that we face is making sure everybody can access that. I yeah, think it's we, completely viable to have rental be a form that people uh, use. And I think what that means is that we have to have alternative modes of wealth generation, that if we stop thinking about homes as assets and start thinking of them as homes, that is a necessity for everyone. Um, it also requires a, so, a whole set of policies that mean how do we give people other opportunities and how do we view um, wealth creation outside of home as asset. But, but home ownership does make a difference when you respond to gentrification, right? If I own the home, even if I get pushed out, I'm going to be pushed out with, with more money in my pocket than I would have had. Other, it's the renters who are the most victimized by, by, by the pushing up of costs of, of housing in the inner cities. Right? So, these are all complex dilemmas that we all we need to think about ways to deal with. Another one of the complex dilemmas that you mentioned is the um, cost of transportation and the rise of traffic. Another audience question we have is, um, has there been a response to produce more public transportation and to improve public transportation? Yeah, let me pick on that. Senator Carl is a real expert on, on transportation and the tra investments in transit. This is uh, traditionally one of the toughest cities in America to build transit in because it's so spread out and people cover such wide And we talked about the multi-centered metropolitan region. People go, 75% of the commutes are from one suburb into another where, where, where different job centers are and, and, and spread out the size of the state of Massachusetts, you know, is one urban unit. So it's been very slow to develop transit. And we're now beginning to do it. And there's now beginning to have the kind of density that will enable transit, transit to work at least to some degree. And you can see that happening. And there's a growing awareness that we're moving into a, a new world of technologies where Uber and, and, and Lyft and, and, you know, and, and bike lanes and, and, and more and more transit and bus rapid transit. We're, we're finding ways to, to provide transit in some of the key corridors that people Right, and but it's very tough. And then once you get to where you want to go, you still need a car to do your shopping and stuff. So it's it, to build a truly transit-oriented city that is spread out over the space of of uh, that number of square miles is a really difficult challenge for for cities like Houston, whereas cities like again that have the density of Honolulu or or New York or San Francisco can do that. But then the cost of living there goes skyrocketing because so many people want to live there and. The, and, and the demand massively exceeds the supply. Yeah, and I would just add, as Steve said, the status quo continues to be auto-centric development, right? It's the whole urban area, 10,000 square miles. Um, the city of Houston is served by Metro, which is one of the most successful transit agencies of the recent decade, I would say. We've expanded our light rail within the city, um, have just passed a referendum in 2019 to do a whole new um, set of bus rapid transit uh, investments, uh, some additional expansion of light rail and the channel and and expansion of existing local routes. And I think that's one of the bigger challenges for us to think about when we talk about transportation and housing and its interconnection at this point is that it's not just about building the system. Obviously, we need that we need a system We need to invest in those tools, but we also need to think about how people access that. And one of the challenges that a community like Houston faces is even with all of those investments, there are places where people are still having to take, you know, two or three transfers to get from where the affordable homes are if they don't own a car. 
Um, if they have access to a bus system, they have to do two or three transfers. It may take them three hours to get to their place of work or to their hospital or to whatever opportunity they're seeking. Um, so one of the challenges of that auto-centric status quo and just, just sort of <laughs> still nascent uh, and relatively limited for the size of the region transit system is that it also, is in, it also fits into this narrative of how do we make sure people can access opportunity. Um, and invest and tying housing and, and um, transit together, I think is a really critical part of, of Houston's next steps. But how, how do we respond to that recognition that, that someone once said that trying to solve your transportation problems by building more roads is like trying to deal with your weight problem by buying a bigger pair of pants, right? It gives you a little bit of relief for a little while, but ultimately that's not gonna be a, a, a long-term solution. And, and, and Houston is beginning to realize that. It's very interesting to see this. But it's again going up against an, a world that was created by the automobile. Houston did not exist, unlike so many other cities, you know, in a transit world. It was a it was a world of of by for and on behalf of the automobile. Very hard to shift that, and, and we're in the process of trying to do it. But it's uh, uh, it's it gets and it needs to it needs density to to make that happen, and density then pushes up the price and cost of living in those places. So it's, uh, it's all the same dilemmas that, that, that all of us are facing. So um, you guys talked a lot about the demographic change that Houston has experienced as a result of the, you know, large scale growth of housing supply and so on. Um, in Hawaii currently, um, during the pandemic, there was a program that was launched called Movers and Shakas, which provided free airplane tickets to 50 work remotely um, folks in the high tech sector. And um, as a method of diversifying Hawaii's economy and of building potentially a future tech sector here, as you might or might not have imagined, that program has been extremely controversial in Hawaii. The idea of attracting outsiders with a potentially different demographic mix than that of Hawaii um, has been very controversial. And yet Houston, as you've articulated, has experienced dramatic changes in its demographics. Has there been a resistance to, the, um, to these changes at the local level? And what lessons would you share with those of us in Hawaii or California or elsewhere who might be resistant to demographic changes of such dramatic scale? No, you bet, a great question. We were you know, we do this survey every year, asking a whole bunch of different questions about comfort with diversity and support for immigration. And the single most powerful predictor among Anglos of comfort with diversity and support for immigration is not education, it's not gender, it's age. Younger Anglos take for granted and, and, and have you know, embraced this diversity in a way that we older Anglos are still struggling to accept. I mean, you can see that's part of this. Uh, change is always difficult. And, and uh, there's a law of human nature that says what I'm familiar with feels right and natural. What I'm unfamiliar with feels unnatural and somehow not quite right. And you can see that transformation occurring where older Anglos are, are, are still are saying, what, why is this changing? And I liked it the way it was. And who are these, these strange people? And younger Anglos and others are just falling in love with each other, making these multiracial babies. We talked about that earlier in a way that, that reflects a, a, a a growing acceptance. I mean, so, I, I, but I'm surprised because Hawaii, we always think of as the most, the most tolerant, the most op open, open-minded of all the of all the states in the union. Uh, but I still think it, it is probably to an important degree, partly because, and what we've been watching in Houston is every year. Granted, older Anglos have more difficulty than younger, but all of us are changing. And every year, more and more acceptance, more and more embrace of that diversity, more and more of a sense of the richness that has come to our city is by, by virtue of the variety of, of, of different cultures and cuisines. And Houston is one of the best cities in America to eat, eat out in because of the wonderful combination of flavors that are, that are there in the fiestas and the festivals and, and the art and music that is just changing the, the experience. So I'm, I'm more optimistic here than the long run people pretty quickly celebrate and absorb that, that variety of, of, of humanity. But, but it is a change from what we knew before. As I say, Hawaii has always embodied the new change. So, so it's, it's interesting to hear that, that there's really that, that kind of resistance and the sense that we don't, who, who is it that we don't want to have come to Hawaii now? Is it... <laughs> I think a distinction I would draw too is sort of the difference between um, 
for lack of a better description, like a government incentive, right? So it's sort of a, an attempt to attract a certain population or to implement a certain like new sector or whatever that's going to be is I think always going to be met with a little bit more um, confrontation and resistance than just sort of some of the organic changes that happen. So I think, and Houston represents more of, I mean, obviously there's systems and causes for all of these changes, but Houston's changes, there, it, there wasn't a program to attract, um, you know, massive immigration in the 80s and 90s and early thousands, but the city did, right? And the city accepted that and some of the flexibility of lack of zoning allowed for a lot of what Steve's talking about where there are, you know, ethnic enclaves with grocery stores and restaurants and schools and every manner of business uh, that you could ever imagine in a place that before was just, you know, a regular strip mall from the 1960s. And so certainly having that like land use flexibility is a big part of that. Um, but I also think that's just a matter of like Houston's trying to do some of the same stuff that you're mentioning with attracting the tech sector. And some of it has been very forced. And actually one of the images I didn't touch on at the end in the third ward is something that Rice University is involved with. It's just the creation of a tech, basically an innovation center in central Houston. Um, and there's also a lot of controversy around that because it's it's gear, it, you know, a, a lot of the neighborhoods around that are viewing it as who is this intended to benefit you know, who is this being, who is being drawn to this investment, you know, um, are the folks who are adjacent to it getting the same benefits or are we just absorbing the consequences that are going to come with it? Um, and in my mind, that's a lot of the same uh, outcome, a lot of the same challenges in the, in the program you described in Hawaii. Well, it's a gentrification process. People wanting to live near the, those, that innovation corridor, pushing up the cost of, of housing for third ward folks who used to live there. So that's right. It's, yeah, I mean, these are, the underlying all of this is the deepening inequalities between rich and poor in America. I mean, it's really what's happening. The, the concentration of wealth in the hands of, a, of, of 15 to 10% of Americans and the lack of opportunity for 50 to 60%. I mean, those figures that you were showing, Kyle, was before the pandemic that deepened dramatically the inequalities. And I mean, that's going to be, that's, that's the, the, it's not just housing, it's also access to quality schools, it's access to, to health care, it's access to, to dental care, to, to, you know, all the things that, that middle class livelihoods used to be able to provide. In Houston, the big employers was Hughes Tool Company, Cameron Ironworks, those jobs have all disappeared. And it's, it's, and we have not for 40 years found a way to seriously make the investments to ensure that this next generation of kids are coming along with the skills they need to compete successfully in the global knowledge economy. And so the growing gaps in, 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 in what, and in the, in the poverty wages that we pay to, to people working full-time, part of this pandemic has also given us a greater appreciation of the essential workers who are out there every day, risking their lives to, to, to keep us healthy. I mean, all that, uh, Inequality is really this underlying story. So you can look at housing, you can look at access to healthcare, you can look at you know, at, at food deserts and quality food and and uh, all of education and all those things. Okay, so um, we've had a few questions about um, this issue of um, the laissez-faire market where, you know, in, in Houston, developers are less constrained by governmental regulation than in most other jurisdictions to respond to market demands. And in your survey, there are market demands for walkable mixed-use urbanism. There's also demand, of course, for open space, for pedestrian infrastructure, for bicycling infrastructure. How has the private sector responded to that demand and fulfilled that demand? Uh, so I'd say in terms of building more centralized housing units, um, that has been a pretty clear response from the market. So townhomes have been a major form of single family home ownership that has, has burgeoned in the last 20 years or so. Um, all, all focused, there's been a couple of recent papers uh, focused on Houston and, and on, on the location of those townhomes. The majority of them actually have not been in gentrifying areas, but instead have been in already higher income, high amenity areas. Um, and so there's been a lot of investment in denser single family. There have also been more and more rental buildings built in higher amenity areas. Um, and so the, so the development community has done actually a fairly good job of addressing that sort of um, above median income price point housing. Um, they have also That's worked really closely with the public sector to build more green spaces. Um, 
the the combination uh, public private partnerships around building green space in Houston has been one of the more transformative pieces of the city's recent history. Um, hundreds of millions of dollars have been invested in turning what we call locally our bayous, but what just about any non Texan or Louisianan would see as a river. Um, uh, we've we've put hundreds of millions of dollars into green space and trails along those. Um, and I would say are a national leader in those types of investments. We're still a little lagging, well, probably more than a little lagging in investments on uh, non-trail pedestrian and bike infrastructure. Um, we've had some really good successes in biking infrastructure in the last couple of years. But again, for a city and a, a region as big as we are, the amount of investment we've done is still pretty pales in comparison to the need if, if, if the goal is safe, comfortable um, pedestrian and bike experiences alongside cars. But the, but the Bayou Greenways Initiative is a beautiful example of, of would have been inconceivable 15 years ago. Uh, Houston is Bayou City. There are nine to, nine to 11 major bayous that are creeks that expand during when, when the rains come. And, and, and what the business community did in the 1970s and 80s was to concretize them to turn them into, into conduits for water, to get it out and to, and to deal with the flooding, flooding issues. No one thought of these as amenities of any value. In, in 2012, the citizens of the city of Houston voted to tax ourselves $100 million to be matched by $130 million in private monies to take the nine major bayous 150 miles and turn them into linear parks. And when, when the Bayou Greenways Initiative is completed, Houston will be one of the greenest cities in America. Again, would not, could not have happened 15 years ago. So there is that, that shift that public-private partnerships that, that, are, that are a big part of Houston, Houston's history. But, they, but to come back to something earlier, uh, private developers make money building for the rich or the middle class. They do not make money building for the poor. And only government insistence and intervention and regulation can insist on, on ensuring that there are, are affordable units in these apartment buildings. Isn't that right, Carl? I mean, there's no way that you can get private enterprise by itself to, to, to see it as, as the most profitable investment they can make. It's well, I mean, I think that's the, that's the challenge for Hawaii in every area right now is what are the approaches that you can take to mix government and, and private investment? Because right. neither alone is going to accomplish, exactly. close the gap of affordability that most major metropolitan areas have. Um, so some of the limitations that Houston has, I mean, there are, Obviously, there are developers who make money off of affordable, who make profit off of affordable units and affordable programs. It's just less of a return. Um, and so thinking about how you work with, with your development community and with your nonprofit community to create collaborations to say, okay, another quirk of Texas, and this is not just unique to Houston, but is a Texas law. In Texas, you cannot do inclusive zoning. So the city of Houston could not say, every new development must require 30% affordability. It's not, it's constitutionally illegal in the state of Texas. So that tool is gone from Texas policymakers, but that doesn't mean that they couldn't come up with more creative solutions to say, okay, well, we wanna change our LIHTC rules to enable more people to get 4% tax credits and have a, and in, in order to encourage more private uh, developers to participate in that, we're going to change it to have 80% market, 20% affordable. Also, not going to close your affordability gap, but may entice more private developers to say, hey, if I can get part of my capital stack is going to be these tax credits, and I just have to do 20% of my units affordable. I, otherwise, I was going to do a 100% and have to put in extra equity. This way, I can get a little a bump and give 20% affordability, um, you know, so you have to identify those kind of win-wins um, and, and it's not, there's nowhere near enough public money to build the units that we need. Um, and uh, without having some public accountability, the private market won't do it either. And so maybe what we're dealing with here, Stanley, is, is a kind of convergence where free enterprise Houston is beginning to move more toward public-private connections and re recognizing the critical role that government has to play in these in, in addressing these issues. Maybe places like Hawaii are making me really move a little bit more toward Houston with how do we maximize free the free enterprise creativity and energy uh, that enables developers to make sufficient money so that they can, we can participate together in these partnerships. So there may be a kind of a converging process as we go forward. 
Well, speaking of what a jurisdiction like Hawaii could learn from the Houston model, um, it turns out actually that over the last hundred plus years, um, jurisdictions with no zoning are fairly, uh, large cities with no zoning are fairly scarce. And it's been kind of a one-way street. Um, jurisdictions tend to go from no zoning to zoning and not mm. really vice versa. But let's say that Hawaii were considering or another highly regulated land use jurisdiction were considering moving toward a more laissez-faire model like Houston's. How would you respond to, you know, say a suburban single family homeowner who is concerned that without zoning next door um, could be, um, you know, demolished and redeveloped as an office tower or as a gas station or as an all night nightclub or as a strip club? Um, how would you, how would you address these fears? How has Houston avoided some of these pitfalls? Yeah, good. And, well, and and then also a distinction you have to make between form-based zoning and use-based zoning, right? And the original use-based zoning is what is really a, a draconian kind of thing that, that you want to get rid of in many ways, right? Determines this is what you can do with this property in this, but form-based. So if if there's a as long as the, the buildings that are being built are conform with the overall pattern of the buildings in the in the in the neighborhood, whatever you're doing in those buildings is 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 up to you. And so, is that right? I mean, that kind of is that is that something you've been looking at also? I mean, the, the, yeah. That's I mean, the the short answer is you can't guarantee that none of those things will happen because I could think of an example of all of those in Houston somewhere. Um, but luckily they're few and far between, right? I think um, what Steve has said repeatedly in, in the past has been, and, and the point about Dallas as well, is that the market still is the market. And so, you know, most developers know that it would be quite weird and people might be hesitant to, you know, build something completely out of line with other uses in the area. Um, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but um, it, it, it is less likely. Um, and I also think that's where those other steps come in, where if you're going to talk about not having comprehensive zoning, you still, Houston still has environmental regulation. You know, you, you can't place toxic uses, you can't place polluting uses uh, directly on top of things. There's still, <laughs> there are still problems that we are confronting with legacy impacts, um, and there still are probably far fewer regulations and far less restrictive regulations than many advocates would like um, around environmentally problematic uses in particular. Um, but there are still ways and there are still laws that you put in, you know, for example, um, you know, an adult, an adult business, an adult themed business, um, you can still keep a certain distance away from schools, Churches. right? You can keep liquor stores a certain distance away from schools. Um, there are, there are still rules in place. Um, but I think, I, and I think what Steve landed on too is also really important is that it's about putting the expectations for what you do want. And it's, again, I think I'd return to this idea of, it can't just be it, the pub, the public can't give up the ability to say this is the type of development we want. Um, it has to compromise. It can't also dictate everything about it. Um, but if if the public sector simply steps away and says, "Good luck, market, go go forth, do what you want," you will get circumstances where development and and projects are things that people are going to complain about. You'll still get them if the public's involved. But at least when the public is involved and sets a container or and whether it's form based code or other expectations on particular corridors, the public can and Houston is trying to do this right now through things called walkable places um, and transit oriented development ordinances where they say, here's the public expectation. We, you know, we're trying to drive density investments alongside our transit corridors. Um, but uh, we're still and, and here's what we expect. If you're going to do a development here, here are the rules you have to meet. And if you don't meet those, you're going to have to ask for a variance. Otherwise, what we've done in the past is you build whatever you want by right. And only if you want to do something outside of your property are you going to have to ask for a variance. So everything we've done has been sort of asking, asking of developers, hey, won't you do this thing? As opposed to you must do this thing. And if you want to do something different, you have to come talk to us. And I think that's a big shift too. Um, and all of those things are possible, are in place in Houston um, and are possible without zoning. Yeah, yeah, and that's the movement. The movement of this free enterprise city moving gradually into a, a more balanced way way of, of encouraging the right kind of developments. Also, what you were saying earlier about environmental racism. I mean, all the all those uh, not those noxious things that people do. If you're rich and in a rich community with a lot of lawyers around, you can stop it. If you're poor, you can't. And now there's more of a recognition of of 
what needs the more equitable distribution of, of power on these things. But but it's a gradual uh, process, and we, we've pride ourselves on taking big steps toward uh, controlling free enterprise. And you look at it and say that's nothing. <laughs> it's a, it's a an interesting process. Well. Um... We've had a really fantastic discussion today. I think we've stretched a lot of minds in our audience today as to the possibilities for what cities uh, can look like, how they can change. Unfortunately, our time is short, so we'll have to leave it there. But um, we really appreciate again, the two of you, Professor Shelton and Professor Kleinberg for um, participating in today's edition of Our Homes, Ending the Housing Crisis. Have a great holiday season. Hey, thanks very much, Sam. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Carl, well done. <laughs> <laughs> you too. Thanks, everybody. Okay. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Our Homes, Ending the Housing Crisis. On behalf of Faith Action for Community Equity and me, Stanley Chang, thank you for being part of the solution to this crisis.